Welcome, friends. Welcome to RUF. Um, we are always thankful that you're here, truly. And I think we, we try to say this at the end every time, but if you are ever looking to like grab coffee, go for a walk, grab breakfast, grab lunch, uh, me and our staff team would uh, really love to do that with you if we haven't gotten the chance already. Um, if you have a handout, all of our numbers are in the back. Um, so just putting that out there. All right, tonight, so we've got two more sermons to finish out. We're, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, this semester, and we've got two more, and tonight we're looking at Mark 14. And to set us up a little bit, tonight, you know, one of the goals of RUF for me, at least really in the whole of our ministry, but especially in my preaching and teaching, there are kind of two ways to do the Christian life. One is where you're really focused on yourself and how you're doing, how you're growing, how you're not growing, how you're struggling, how you're not struggling. And don't hear me wrong, uh, there is a, such a thing as spirit-led introspection that can be really, really good. And I think about this old Puritan a lot. His name is Robert Murray McShane. And he has a line that I've loved. You've probably heard it if you've been around area for a while, where he says, for every one look you take at yourself, take ten looks to Christ. And that's the goal of our office. We really want you to be looking to Jesus, because Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Jesus is the lover of our souls. And tonight we're looking at, a, at one of the hardest moments of Jesus' life in Mark 14. I want to set us up a little bit because we're looking at the Garden of Gethsemane. But let me give us a little bit of context. Thinking about tonight's sermon is just called The Cup. Let me try to set us up before we read our passage. Here's what one commentator says. If we look in the Old Testament, we find that the metaphor of the cup stands for our lives, which can be filled with a variety of things. Our cup can be filled with blessing and salvation, hence Psalm 23, or it can be filled with wrath and horror, Isaiah 51. Frequently, the cup stands for God's judgment and wrath. Consider, for example, Isaiah 51. Wake up, wake up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk the cup cup of the Lord's fury. You have drunk the cup of terror, tipping out its last drops. Many other Old Testament passages use the metaphor of the cup as a reference to God's fierce judgment against sin. Our passage tonight, Mark 14, 32 to 36. Let me read it for us. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Let me pray for us and then we'll dive into what I want to talk about tonight. Let's pray first. Lord, you are the one um, who didn't deserve the cup, and yet you were the one who drank it for us. You are the one who faced what our sin deserves. You are the one that faced uh, the wrath of the Father. You are the one that faced um, all of it. And Lord, you did that in obedience and love to the Father, and you did that because you love us with a perfect, sacrificial, 
a love that we long for and a love that we get to see a little bit in this passage tonight. Lord, I pray that you would do what you alone can do in our midst tonight, which is to meet us where, where we really are. Lord, would you meet us in our anxieties? Would you meet us in our seasons of depression? Would you meet us in the pains that we carry? Would you meet us uh, for those of us who feel like life is actually pretty great right now? Lord, we still need to hear from you. Would you draw our faces that we might look to you, that we might see you, that you might become more beautiful and more believable to us? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. That's the question that I want to think about tonight, thinking about the cup, is if we were to ask it like this, where is Jesus in your suffering and in my suffering? Where is Jesus in our suffering? I think there's, what I want you to see tonight is there is something unique about Christianity because there's something unique about Jesus. Think about it like this for a second. What do other world religions maybe say about suffering? We could take a few and we could elaborate, but here's some short attempts. Buddhism kind of says suffering is basically an illusion. Uh, there is such a thing as, as karma that a lot of people believe in beyond Taylor Swift that says suffering comes to those who deserve it. Uh, secularism basically says suffering is random, therefore pretty meaningless. And then we get to see Jesus as he takes the cup tonight. And I think he doesn't necessarily say something profound about it. There's plenty of beautiful truth in scripture about how God at least works in and through our suffering. But what I want you to see tonight is where we ended last week, if you were with us, when, the Colbert, when Colbert said, God did it too. Then instead of saying something profound about suffering, what I want you to see tonight is Jesus actually enters into it. This is the Colbert, God did it too. We get to watch Jesus enter into suffering. And I want you to see just three things about the cup. The cup means three things for you and me. Here's the first It means that Jesus suffered with us. Uh, It means he takes the name man of sorrows to himself because he knows what life in a fallen world is like. He knows, we can look at this passage and say, he knows something about despair and depression. He knows something about anxiety, which is in Luke's version where he records Jesus sweating blood literally as he is anxiously in this moment in the garden. He knows what it's like to go through a moment of unspeakable pain. He knows what it's like to feel with the the psalmist in Psalm 102, for my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread because of my loud groaning. My bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. The loneliness of suffering. Jesus knows it. He knows what it's like. Let's try this. He knows what it's like to pray earnestly to the Father from a place that we can't claim of pure righteousness to pray his heart out and to be met with silence. To be met with silence. Um, There's an Andrew Peterson song that I like a lot. I'm not (laughs) not a huge you know what? I want to grow here. It used to be, I'm the guy that sold all the secular music for Christian music, and now I've rebelled against that. So I'm like, I hate Christian music, except I like Andrew Peterson. Um, and there's a song, his song, Silence to God. Here's where, here, how he starts it. He, he's, he's in Kentucky. He's at this uh, seminary, monastery kind of thing. And, and there's a statue of Jesus in, uh, kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane, and here's where he starts the song. 
It's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleeding from comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. It'll shake a man's timbers when he loses his heart, when he has to remember what broke him apart. This yoke may be easy, but this burden is not, when the crying fields are frozen by the silence of God. And if a man has got to listen to the voices of the mob who are reeling in the throes of all the happiness they've got, when they tell you all their troubles have been nailed up to that cross, then what about the times, and I love this line, what about the times when even followers get lost? Because we all get lost sometimes. I just had coffee today with a young man who got converted, RUF at Delta State, and it was beautiful to listen to him tell me today what basically gave him his moment of conversion was listening to one of my uh, just a dude that I love a lot, his name's Seth Still, just sharing, it's okay to not be okay. And he's like, I grew up in a tradition that did not tell me that. I grew up in a tradition that said, to be a, a man of faith means you have to be okay. And to hear Seth point him to Jesus and say, it's okay to not be okay because our Lord knows something about that because Jesus knows that silence and he knows that, that lostness that Andrew Peterson's talking about in the deepest of ways. He suffered with us. The cup means he drinks it with us. He knows what it's like to suffer with us, but it means more than that. The second thing that it means is that he suffered for us. The cup means that he suffered not just with us, but for us. This is what's interesting. It's going to get a little bit uncomfortable, but stay with me. What all the commentators point out is what the gospel of Mark does differently than the other gospels, which shows the deep humanity of Jesus. He's experienced this in his humanity. And what Mark is showing us, really all through Mark, but especially in this passage tonight, is how unhinged and how unsettled Jesus seems. Think with me for a second. Up until this point, he's been nothing but pretty calm and composed and compassionate, sometimes confrontational. But suddenly it feels like and seems like he's full of this crippling anxiety and deep, true fear. It seems so different if you've grown up in the church. It seems so different maybe from stories of martyrs that you've heard about. Track with me for a second. If you know the story of Polycarp, who before the great flames in Rome said this, 86 years have I served him. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Or if you know the stories of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, who before they were burned, uh, Latimer said to Ridley, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall, light this, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And Jesus seems almost cowardly in comparison. Why? Because he knows what he's facing is worse, far worse than death. It's that second death, if you know your Bible, that Revelation refers to. It's the cup of the full wrath of God against our sin. Sometimes we say like this in our tradition, it's the turning away of the Father in judgment in our place that Jesus is is taking this cup. 
I like the way that's on your handout. One guy says it, Bill Lane. He says, the dreadful sorrow and anxiety that Jesus Christ experienced in the prayer for the passing of the cup was, just, was not just an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor of a shrinking from the prospect of the physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of one who lived a holy life for the Father and who came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him. Sometimes I think we can think that it was the pain of his death, but to understand the cup means it wasn't the painful crucifixion. It was the Father giving Jesus over to the hell that sin deserves. What I want you to see is that Jesus doesn't just relate to us in our sufferings, but he actually suffered for us. That's why Paul in Romans 5 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or take us in your handout, Donald McLeod. I like the way he says it. The wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but that for their, for their sake he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know, he took damnation lovingly. Uh, I do this at least once a year. If you've been around RAF, surely you've heard it. But one of my favorite all-time movies is a movie called The Iron Giant. It's an animated film uh, from the 90s. If you don't know the story, here's the story. Hogarth being raised by a single mother, played by, voiced by Jennifer Aniston. It's a fun little fact. And uh, he's growing up lonely without a father. And this random occurring of events, this is in the 50s, kind of the height of the Cold War. This Iron Giant falls from the sky into Hogarth's backyard. And just... the, the the way it happens is he and Hogarth develop this friendship. The part where it gets weird is the U.S. Army, there's this one general in particular who is determined that this iron giant is really a Soviet spy and it, and it has to be killed. And so the way the movie kind of goes toward the end is this general brings tanks and missiles to destroy this giant. And this is sort of the, the, the great ending of the film is uh, the general and the, and the army has chased this giant, iron giant, into the town square. And all of the town is kind of gathered around watching this spectacle. And the giant is there with Hogarth and his mom. Um, and then without thinking, this crazed general fires a missile. And this missile is you know, going off into the sky. And then this really beautiful thing happens. The giant looks at the missile, and then he looks at, his, he looks at the people, and then he looks at his friend, Hogarth, and he knows that if the missile comes back and destroys him, it's also going to destroy all of the people. And so the giant flies up into the sky, and he takes this missile, and he takes it to himself. And he explodes into a thousand pieces. And right before he does it, this is the part that always gets me. Right before he does it, he smiles. And he takes the missile to himself. And every time I see that, I think about Hebrews 12. For the joy set before him. Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. And I love the way that Tim Keller will say it. What was that joy? That joy was you. And that joy was me. 
I love the way that George Herbert says it. It's on your handout. He says it like this. Love is that liquor sweet and most divine that my God feels as blood, but I as wine. The cup means that he suffers with us. The cup means that he suffered for us in his great love. But the last thing I want you to see is the cup also means that Jesus suffered. This is how I want to say it. Jesus suffered that our suffering might be transformed. Jesus suffered that our suffering might be transformed. Jesus suffers in the garden, not that our life might be roses, but that life in Eden might be restored. He suffers so that our suffering isn't random. It isn't illusion. But it works in ways seen and unseen to us to draw us into a closer fellowship with Jesus who is our life. Let me say it better. He suffered not that we wouldn't suffer, but that in all of our sufferings we would be drawn closer to him and know him. What is it to know, that's what Paul says, what is it to know the Lord Jesus but to know him in his suffering for you? To know him crucified. Um, I'll close with this. I, I love David Pallison. He's one of my counseling heroes. He ended up passing of cancer a few years ago. But I can't say it better than he said it. Here's what he says. So, so often the initial reaction to painful suffering is, why me? Why this? Why now? Why? But God comes for you in the flesh in Christ into suffering on your behalf. He does not offer advice and perspective from afar. He steps into your significant suffering. He will see you through and work with you the whole way. This reality changes the questions that rise up from your heart. That inward turning, why me, quiets down, lifts its eyes and begins to look around. You turn outward and new wonderful questions begin to form. Why you? Why would you enter this world of evils? Why would you go through loss, weakness, hardship, sorrow, and death? Why would you do this for me of all people? But you did. You did this for the joy set before you. You did this for love. You did this showing the glory of God in the face of Christ. And as that deeper question sinks home, you become, I love this line, you become joyously sane. Isn't that what you want? You're about to go be with your families. (laughs) I'm about to host my family. Wouldn't you like to feel joyously sane? The universe is no longer supremely about you, yet you are not irrelevant. God's story makes you just the right size. Listen to this. Everything counts, but the scale changes to something that makes much more sense. You face hard things, but you've already received something better, which can never be taken away. And finally, you are prepared to pose and to mean almost unimaginable questions. Why not me? Why not this? Why not now? If in some way my faith might serve as a three-watt nightlight in a very dark world, why not me? If he sanctifies to me my deepest desires, if he bears me in his arms, if my weakness demonstrates to the power of God to save us from all that is wrong, if my honest struggle shows others how to land on their feet, if my life becomes a source of hope to others, why not me? Of course, you don't want to suffer, but you've become willing. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. 
yet not as I will, but as you will. And like him, your loud cries and tears will in fact be heard by the one who saves from death because Jesus was raised. Like him, you will learn obedience through what you suffer. Like him, you will sympathize with the weaknesses of others. Like him, you will deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Like him, you will display faith to a faithless world, hope to a hopeless world, love to a loveless world, life to a dying world. And here's how Andrew Peterson ends his song. There's a statue of Jesus on a monastery knoll in the hills of Kentucky, all quiet and cold. And he's kneeling in the garden, as silent as a stone. All his friends are sleeping, and he's weeping all alone. And the man of all sorrows, he never forgot what sorrow is carried by the hearts that he bought. Do you know that he knows your sorrow? So when the questions dissolve into the silence of God, the aching may remain, but the breaking does not. The aching may remain, but the breaking does not in the holy, lonesome echo of the silence of God. Let me pray for us. Our Lord, would you meet us in these ways? Lord, I don't know what it is. I can't pretend to know all that we're carrying. You know. Lord, I pray that you would meet us exactly in the ways that we need to be met with tonight. You can do that. You do do that. You love to do that by the work of your spirit. Would you do that in our midst tonight and as we leave from this place? Lord, I thank you. I thank you that, you that you took the cup. And Lord, I pray that every time we get or the next time we get to take the cup of communion, Lord, that we would know maybe a little bit more what it is that you took for us and that we would sip what you knew as blood, but we now know as wine. Lord, we ask this and pray this for Christ in your name. Amen. Please stand and sing with us.